0: thank you for tuning into The World Game, a World Cup podcast. The podcast that will have everything you need to know about the World Cup. There will be recap episodes throughout the tournament, so you won't miss a storyline. Maybe there was a 90th minute game winning goal. Maybe there was some controversy. Either way, we'll dive right into it. My name is Peter Roman. I've loved football all my life. And thanks for joining me on this journey. Before we get going on the episode, I have to talk about some really unfortunate things. But I also just want to say, I apologize for this episode being really late. I know I said I'd have this episode out on Saturday. I know it's Monday now, but I had a, there was an intro to this show that I tried recording several times and I just didn't like the way any of it came out because we're dealing with very serious issues about people in Qatar. And so... You'll you'll understand pretty quickly what I mean by that. But anyway, I tried recording that intro a lot of times, and I never really liked it, so I decided to just wait on it. And so today's episode will be about the quarterfinals, but I also need to talk about the other things as well. So first I have to talk about the migrant worker situation. Unfortunately, thousands of people died in building the infrastructure for the World Cup, and my heart goes out to the families and the victims of the horrible human rights tragedy. It should have never, ever happened. But I also have to talk about something else, about something that's happened in Qatar regarding two journalists now. So the first journalist, so this first incident happened during the Argentina-Netherlands game, which my time zone, I live in Canada in mountain time. So from my time, it was like noon till like three o'clock was the Argentina-Netherlands game. And then we found out about this like Saturday night, so this was after I recorded my episode recapping the first day of the quarterfinals. So, we had American journalist Grant Wall, and he unfortunately passed away. He passed away at the age of 48. He was covering the Netherlands-Argentina match, and according to reports and eyewitnesses, he collapsed. And then was taken to hospital and was pronounced dead. So. First, my heart goes out to his family and his friends. It's awful that obviously he passed away. And, you know, w- when it comes to Grant Wall, there's some other circumstances that I'll also talk about as well. But then, more recently, there has been another journalist that has passed away. So, this is a Qatari photographer. His name is Khalid Al Mislam. And if I butchered that name, I apologize. (laughs) I really tried. But he has also passed away. And this was more recently, I believe. There's still, okay, I want to stress this. There's a lot of details still coming out. I'm recording this on Monday, like afternoon, my time. So, you know, there's still, this is an ongoing situation with these two cases and there will be lots more details I'm sure in the days and weeks and months to come. So I want to stress that first. With uh, Khalid Al-Mislam, there's not a lot of information right now as far as what happened other than he has suddenly passed away while covering the World Cup. He is apparently a a Qatari uh, photojournalist, is apparently his his occupation. Obviously, like with Grant Wall, my heart goes out to Al-Mislam's family and his friends, and it's horrible that this has happened now to two journalists, so that you know, it's never, never good. It's awful. And I feel terrible for for them and, and their loved ones and family members. But of course, these two incidents need to be investigated because obviously there's a lot more questions than we have answers right now. I don't really want to speculate too much, but, you know, there's a lot of questions that people have, right? You know, could it be medical issues? Could it be, you know, heat issues, right? These are questions that people will have, and they're things that I think need to be answered. In the case of Grant Wall, the only other thing I want to add to this is just his brother posted a video on Instagram saying that he believes there might be foul play involved in this. And now, before I talk about this, I want to stress that at this time, my time of recording, there is zero actual evidence of any foul play involved regarding his death. However, I would be wrong to, you know, ignore that the circumstances around his death are certainly at least a little bit suspicious. The reason I say that is because Grant Wall has been a very outspoken journalist against the Qatari government for their actions regarding the World Cup. And so very early in the tournament, the first game he was attending and trying to go to to he wore a pride shirt like a shirt with the pride colors on it and he was detained by stadium police for a few hours wasn't let into the game FIFA later apologized and he was able to attend the other games uh, afterwards but you know that certainly is one thing there and then the day before he passed away this was the article he wrote and I'll read you the headline here quote World Cup daily day 25 they just don't care Qatari World Cup organizers don't even hide their apathy over migrant worker deaths, including the most recent one, end quote. If you're wondering what he's referring to, apparently there was a worker who was working at the Saudi Arabian training facility, and I guess there was an accident involving a forklift. And so, Grant points out in his article that the Qatari government just doesn't seem to care that people die, even if this one does appear to be an accident, they just seem to have zero, zero morality at all for people dying on their watch, essentially. So, and you know, I agree with him on those opinions, but it's certainly at least a little bit suspicious that he passes away the day after this article is written. But again, I wanna stress at this time, there's no actual evidence of any foul play involved, but it's important to note circumstances like this. So, that's pretty much all I got for this intro, but I think you can imagine why this took many attempts for me to be able to actually like say what I want to say properly and you know, I don't want to talk about this stuff. It's really sad. I want to talk about the sport I love, but I can't ignore stuff like this. Stuff like this is just too important to ignore. So, now on to the episode. Today's episode, while very sad at the beginning, is very exciting from a football perspective. And I think it's important to celebrate players' accomplishments on the field. So, we had the quarterfinals, day two. We had Morocco versus Portugal, and we had England versus France. These two games were pretty interesting for different reasons, but I'm going to start with the Morocco Portugal game. So, starting with the first half, Morocco. I think definitely came into this game knowing that they would have to be a little bit defensive, especially because they're dealing with some injuries right now. They came into this game, Masarawi and Aguerd both couldn't play for Morocco. They were both injured. So there goes one of your starting center backs. There goes your starting left back. Not a good start for them. And then Sais, their uh, center back and their captain, was playing with an injury. So that's not great either for them, especially against this Portugal team and fortunately for Morocco, they defended really well in this game in spite of having some backups in there. Portugal had a lot more possession early on and found a little bit of success from set pieces and creating some chances, but Bono was equal to the task in the Moroccan goal, and the overall theme of the first half in this game is that Portugal had a really hard time breaking down the Moroccan defense, and Morocco, first of all, deserve a ton of praise for the way that for the way they defended in this game they were really compact they were very disciplined they were very organized and defensively you have to be all of those things at all times in order for you to keep out teams with good players teams that have better attacking players than you do which I think it's fair to say that Portugal has better attacking players than Morocco but Morocco defended really well and essentially what Morocco did defensively their formations a 4-3-3, so four defenders, three midfielders, three forwards, but the wide forwards would talk in to the midfield, so it became a 4-5-1 when they didn't have the ball, and so that 4-5-1 was really, really important because they basically suffocated the space from Portugal, and for Portugal, in my opinion, they didn't do a good enough job in trying to break down a really tough defense. When you're playing a team with a really good defense like Morocco, there's a few things you can do to try to break down the defense. One of them, which Portugal actually did, but just not executed well, is you can try to stretch the field. So Portugal had their wide players out on the sideline, So they were like sideline to sideline, basically, which is good because you want to stretch the field as much as possible to create as much space as you can. The problem is Portugal didn't execute this strategy very well because in order for this strategy to work, you have to be able to switch the ball from one side of the field to the other. And Portugal, while number one, they didn't switch the ball enough. And number two, when they did try to switch the ball, it was really bad passing. It kept going out of bounds and that's just not gonna work out. So in my opinion though, the best way to break down a defense like this is just off ball movement. So when your team has the ball, but you as an individual don't have the ball. So let's say, You're the striker and one of your defenders or midfielders has the ball. Well, as a striker, you can sit there and stay in your position and be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, be in my spot, like pretty close to the center backs, and I'm going to wait for long balls. Or you could move, right? Because when you don't have the ball, but your team has it, off-ball movement, in my opinion, is the best way to break down a defense like this. And Portugal just didn't have anywhere near enough of this. In my opinion it was a lot of standing around it was a lot of waiting for the ball to come to them as opposed to moving and trying to draw the defense out of shape because when you're able to move properly and interchange and switch positions and just move around without the ball that's the best way to drag defenders out of position and create space for other players or potentially yourself in trying to create scoring chances so I think Portugal fundamentally, I think, came about this the wrong way in trying to break down the defense. Stretching the field is a great technique, but you have to do it properly. And in my opinion, the best way to do it is just, just move off the ball. Have a lot of movement and never let them properly track you because if you're a defender and you're going up against you know, an opposing player and they're just standing there waiting for the ball, they're a lot easier to mark than if they're moving around constantly. So, but that's just my opinion. But anyway, continuing on the first half, João Félix had the closest chances, I would say, for Portugal. He had a shot that took a deflection that came really close in about the 30th minute. And then he had another chance about eight minutes later. It was kind of a tough shot, but he ended up missing both of, he ended up missing the net on both shots. And then we have the very, very exciting moment. So Cross came in and it was Morocco's striker En-Nesyri who leaped into the air and headed the ball into the back of the net and Morocco take the lead 1-0 in the first half the biggest goal in Moroccan football history and of course their supporters who were so great in this game they were loud they were singing they were dancing they were cheering they just went crazy when this goal went in and in the series the biggest goal in moroccan history they lead one nothing i would be you know i'd be wrong to admit the fact that portugal's defending on this was really bad see there was two portuguese players there was ruben diaz the center back and diogo costa the goalkeeper both of them went for the ball And it felt like both, I think, felt the other one was going to get it. So, like, I think Ruben Diaz thought Costa was going to get it, and I think Costa thought that Diaz was going to get it. They were both wrong. Neither one of them really made a true effort to get the ball. And then Nasiri, who timed his jump perfectly, had a wide-open header, essentially, to head it into the open net. So horrible defending by Portugal, but credit has to be given. He timed his jump right, and then Nasiri have to you know direct the header on goal he did he scored it's what a striker does so morocco lead one nothing and just before the end of the half because portugal tried to press to get the goal back immediately bruno fernandez hit the crossbar and then there was an incident at the end of the first half the portuguese players and coaches were really upset bruno fernandez went down in the box in my opinion he dove i don't think it was ever a penalty i think the referee was correct to wave it away But the Portuguese players, of course, were not too happy about that decision. So that brings us to the second half. So in the second half, Portugal made some very early substitutions. Because, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo did not start this game. Just like he didn't start against Switzerland. And when you beat a team 6-1 without your best player, maybe, you know, it's not a horrible idea to, like, go with the if it ain't broke, don't fix it model. But of course, in this first half, I think you could say it was broke because Portugal didn't score and they're down 1-0. So pretty early into the half, Portugal bring on João Cancelo and they bring on Cristiano Ronaldo. Those are the right changes to make. If it's broke, bring on your guys. And so they brought on their guys. And now Portugal really, really pressing, trying to get the equalizer. Unfortunately, they just couldn't find very many chances to be had behind that Moroccan defense Morocco was so solid defensively I could literally count the number of defensive mistakes they made on one hand like that's how good their defense was in this game now that's not something you're gonna that's not something you're necessarily gonna get like every single game you play but it's really really impressive when you see it and unfortunately for Morocco in this second half they lost their captain and their center back, Saïs, he got injured. He came into the game, like I said, playing with an injury. He, I must have re-aggravated it or something because he got stretchered off in the 56th minute. So Morocco had to defend for their lives for the last, like, 30 minutes without their best center back. Not ideal. But fortunately for them, they their backups played really well in this game, despite not really having a lot of tournament experience. But, yeah, they defended really well. I got to give them credit. So for Portugal, obviously they're pressing, they're trying to get this tying goal here. Ramos had a really good header that went wide. Gonzalo Ramos by the way was really bad in this game. I didn't even see him in the first half. I you could not you could have told me he was playing and I'm just like, "Okay, he didn't like touch the ball. It felt like he wasn't even involved in the first half." And he got subbed kind of rightfully. So Portugal have a lot of good players they can bring on for subs and in the 63rd minute, Bruno Fernandes had a golden chance at the top of the box. His shot just a little too high. And then Morocco with a little under 30 minutes to go, they made a formation change. So they took off Ziyech and Buffal, their wide creative players, and they basically went into full park the bus mode. And so for them, that meant five defenders, four midfielders, one forward. So Morocco at this point with under 30 minutes to go, fully accepted the fact that they scored their one goal they needed and now defend for your life and so portugal pressed and they got a really really good chance drow felix in the 82nd minute he had a really great curling shot it was going right to the corner and bono made his best save of the game at the right time for his team brilliant save brilliant brilliant save and so morocco still still hold on to the one nothing lead then cristiano ronaldo had a chance a little bit later it was kind of a it would have been asking a lot for him to score on that chance but he still didn't take a very good shot bono made the easy save and chadira a little bit later he ended up getting sent off basically here in additional time uh, chadira he got a yellow card earlier in the game and then the second yellow card which i will be 100 percent honest in my opinion wasn't worthy of a yellow card he basically stepped on the portuguese player's foot and sometimes that can be a yellow card for me just watching the play i didn't think it was a yellow card i thought it was careless rather than reckless those are the language terms that fifa uses in the rule book is if it's careless it's not a card but if it's reckless it's a yellow card in my opinion it was more careless than reckless but of course the referee felt otherwise Chidira sent off So now Morocco is defending with 10 men. And fortunately, they defended super well with 10 men. And Portugal really didn't have many chances until the very last minute of the game. Because Pepe, there was a cross come in. And Pepe had the header right in the middle of the box. He had just acres of space. It It felt like he had no one even close to him. Pepe... A golden golden opportunity with this header and I know he's a defender I know he's the defender but like gotta put it on target man it went wide heartbreak for Portugal and they lose one nothing. the final score Morocco win and make history they become the first African team to ever make the semifinals at the World Cup I mean just nothing but congratulations Morocco, in my opinion, deserved to win. They defended super, super well in this game. They had some really good moments offensively. Not a lot, but like, you know, they had some. And of course, you had Diaz and Costa make mistakes, and Nasiri made them pay. And that's what good teams do. Good teams punish bad teams for their mistakes. Portugal did not play well in this game. Not well enough at all. Bruno Fernandes, probably his worst game of the tournament, which is bad time for that to happen. And unfortunately for Cristiano Ronaldo, the dream ends here. It's unlikely he'll still be on the team for the next World Cup. And so he had five attempts in his career, and it looks like he won't be winning the World Cup, at least not as a player anyways. So for Ronaldo, he was in tears after the game. You can totally understand why he would be. It totally makes sense. But for Morocco, pure joy and pure celebration. They're through to the semifinals. They've already made history. And now the question for Morocco, can they do a little bit more? Can they become the first non-European or South American team to make the final? That will be the question. I'm very excited to find out. If they can do that, of course for Morocco, the big concern out of this game is just they're kind of running out of players here a little bit defensively. Hakimi's the only starter left who's not injured. Fortunately, Hakimi's their, like, arguably their best player. So, I mean, that's something I li- at least. But like, yeah, they, um, they're a little shorthanded at the moment. So that will be a storyline to keep an eye on going into the next game. But for right now, pure joy and celebration and they deserve to celebrate congratulations morocco on making history i'm more than happy to get this prediction wrong by the way because again i was cheering for morocco they're the better story than portugal going through for portugal now it is a very tough situation for them portugal obviously i think had higher expectations than just the quarterfinals but now they're out and this was you know had a really good team this was a really good opportunity for them so they have to feel a little bit disappointed at least by this this isn't like a total embarrassment the way it was for brazil but this has to be at least disappointing for portugal and this was cristiano ronaldo's last world cup game so cristiano ronaldo has been the greatest portuguese player of all time and what he's done for that country in a sporting sense you know can never be like truly appreciated the way it should be but unfortunately he couldn't win the greatest trophy of them all the world cup and so cristiano ronaldo you know whether he likes it or not part of his legacy will be that he is one of the best players ever to not win the world cup but I'm going to talk more about Cristiano Ronaldo's legacy in a different episode. I'm going to do that with Messi as well. I'll do this after the tournament's over because I feel like the two of them are so interlinked together that just, you know, their legacies sort of need to be talked together rather than apart, if that makes sense. So I'll leave that for a future episode. But again, congratulations to Morocco. They're through to the semifinals. And that's all I got for this game. So on to England-France. So, England-France. This game I was really excited about, and I thought it might have been the highest scoring game of the quarterfinals. Turned out it wasn't, but you know, it was close, it was close. So, starting in the first half, a little cagey to start. It felt like both teams were sort of just feeling each other out, and that happens in games like this, you know, both teams, neither one wants to make an early mistake, they're kind of, you know, just feeling out the game a little bit. And interesting strategy deployed by England. So England basically went with the lineup I thought they would, but they executed it very differently than the other games because they basically assigned Kyle Walker to follow Mbappe everywhere he goes. Kyle Walker, if you had to pick an English defender to mark him, he's the one player that could maybe keep up with him. And Kyle Walker, I think for large portions of this game, did about as good as you could against Mbappe. Mbappe will always be a little bit dangerous no matter what, when he gets the ball, but I think Walker did about as much as you could ask for guarding him in this game. But it was an interesting strategy because having Walker basically man-mark Mbappe meant that you didn't get the, the, the support on the right-hand side that they could have as far as like overlapping runs and attacking play. Walker basically sat as deep as the center backs because Mbappe just hung out at half quite often when England had the ball and he couldn't go forward because he had to stay back because otherwise they were going to get killed. So I don't hate the strategy, I just thought it was interesting that they were so worried about him, they basically had their best defender, their quickest defender assigned to him, and they were sacrificing his forward play in preference of the defense. And I sort of agree with Southgate on that decision. I think that's a good decision to make. I would want to do the same thing as well to stop a guy like Kylian Mbappe. So anyway, the first big incident happened when there was an English player, Saka, who was fouled, and I will say this, he was fouled by Mikano, and this was just outside the box, like kind of towards the corner. Now, this was definitely a foul, and there's absolutely no doubt about it in my mind, it should have been called. Unfortunately for England, it wasn't called, and because this wasn't called, Upamecano went on a run, and then he played Mbappe. Mbappe drove at the defense drew like three English players to him, made a pass inside to Dembele, Dembele to Griezmann, Griezmann laying it off, and then it was Chouameni who shot it from like 25 yards out, and it was a rocket. Low, hard, in the corner, and France lead, 1-0 off this goal. And so English fans were very upset that the goal was allowed to happen because of the foul that happened initially this is where it becomes kind of tricky, because VAR can intervene in situations like this, but this was also kind of just a kind of bad luck for England is the best way I can describe this. See, in my opinion, you could argue both sides of this. From the French perspective, you could argue, and I think legitimately argue, that the foul happened long enough ago that it didn't directly impact and lead to the goal and the reason why you could make that argument is because the foul happened on the complete other side of the field number one and number two if you actually look at the replays England were able to get eight players back behind the ball if you're able to get eight players back behind the ball you could certainly argue that this foul was not like it didn't directly lead to the goal because that's essentially what VAR is trying to determine, is did the foul directly lead to the goal? You could argue no. You could also argue yes, because Uba doesn't go on that big run and draw out the English defense without fouling Saka. So in my opinion, you could argue both sides to this, and I think both have legitimate cases where on one hand, this foul didn't impact the goal, or at least england had more than enough time like time passed between the foul and the goal that england could have done something about it and you could argue the other side which is that it was a foul and it did directly lead and it you know impacted the whole play and everything else i think both sides have a case the var refs sided with france's side in this case and so unfortunately for england it was a tough one and if you're English and you wanna be mad about this, be mad at the red head referee. The head referee's the one who needs to call that on the field, he didn't call it. And in fact, he didn't call a lot of things in this game. And I really don't wanna talk about the officiating again, I talked about it a lot during the Argentina-Netherlands game, but I have to talk about it a little bit in this game. The referee let a lot of stuff go and I'm just like, yeah, there's a lot of like fouls happening on both sides that are just being completely ignored. And in this case, for England, that, that's a tough no call because the VAR ref, in my opinion, you could have made a case either way, but the head referee on the field has to call that in real time. And because he didn't call that in real time, now you left it up to interpretation. And the VAR ref, in my opinion, made a determination, and I'm okay with the decision they made. But that foul should be called in real time. And so if you're an English fan, I think you have a right to be a little bit upset that this foul wasn't called because it should have been. So anyway, next England got a really good chance pretty much immediately after the goal. Harry Kane, excellent positioning. He basically spun and turned Upamecano inside out and Saka did a really good job to find him on the pass. But Hugo Lloris, great, great save. He came out of his net, made himself look big and got a hand on it. Harry Kane and Hugo Lloris play on the same club at Tottenham. And so, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure one is a little happier than the other after this game, but I'll talk more about that. There's more drama between the two of them, but Kane, brilliant play inside, just couldn't bury it. Hugo Lloris, good save. Then in the 26th minute, we have more controversy. England were screaming about a penalty kick because they thought Kane got tripped in the box. Now, I've watched this like a bunch of times from different angles, zoomed in, zoomed out, I think it's outside the box. It's really close and there isn't like definitive evidence either way, but I think it's outside the box. And because it's outside the box, VAR can't intervene. See, the video assistant referee can only intervene when it's a penalty kick or something in the box, it's a red card, mistaken identity, or offside. That's where VAR can intervene. But if it's a foul outside the box, they can't intervene. That's just the rules don't allow them to. So once again, if you're English and you want to be upset about this, be mad at the head referee because they should have gotten a free kick outside the box. I think it's really close, but I would say the the decision to not intervene from VAR was correct. But the head referee made a bad decision not calling it a foul at all because Kane clearly got tripped by Ube Meccano And I don't know why that wasn't called a foul. So England should have gotten a free kick just outside the box. So a couple controversial moments in that first half, that's for sure. But I do want to talk about England's attacking players. So Saka and Kane, to me, in this first half, great performances. Saka, by the way, in my opinion, was England's best player in this game. Saka, every time he touched the ball, it felt like he was going to create something dangerous. And he was kind of by himself, because remember I talked about how Kyle Walker had to stay back because he had to guard Mbappe? Well, Saka, essentially on his own, on the wing... He just generated chance after chance after chance. He was dribbling by guys the whole game. Saka was constantly a threat. And in my opinion, he was England's best player. He was so good. It felt like he didn't put in a foot wrong the whole game. And for the 20-year-old from Arsenal, that's got to feel pretty good if you're English because he will only get better from here. And then Harry Kane, one of the best halves I've seen him play in this tournament. I thought he was really good. He didn't score in this first half, but I still felt he was dangerous the whole time. His positioning was really good. He did a good job slipping in behind and targeting Upa Meccano. And unfortunately for him, Hugo Lloris got the better of him twice in this first half. But of course, you know, there's more to this story in the second half. So the only other note I have is that Phil Foden, who is the other member of England's front three, Foden, in my opinion, had a very bad game. He was kind of anonymous for most of this game, where, like, you just never noticed him you know he was he was out there like sure he was running around but like didn't really make any dangerous plays didn't make any good passes didn't make any good dribbles or like any good movement or like just there wasn't there wasn't anything threatening from Foden Foden just felt like a guy who was running around the field for like 80 minutes and that's kind of it it didn't feel like he offered anything to England so I I was surprised he got the minutes he did let's just say but I'll talk more about that in the second half. So speaking of the second half, let's go to it. So France led 1-0 after the first half. And so now going into the second half, England knew they needed to score. And they came out playing like it. England had a brilliant start to the second half. They were playing some just exquisite football. Like, And it's weird for me to say that about an English team, but their attacking players were good in this game. And Bellingham had a great strike to start the half. It was denied by Lloris, who made another good save. Harry Maguire almost set up a goal. And, you know, Upa Meccano, he was just getting torched this whole game. It was a rough, rough outing for him. The other guy who had a rough outing on the French defense was Theo Hernandez because Saka was eating him alive. It was a very, very poor defending display, but, like, he was just getting torched. Saka was burning him at every single moment basically in this game so tough one for Ruben Meccano tough one for Theo Hernandez but again England played really well in this game and then they got their break Chua ended up tripping Saka in the box clear and obvious penalty and so England the chance to tie the game Harry Kane against his club teammate Hugo Lloris stepped up and buried it great penalty right in the corner And it's 1-1. England fully deserved their equalizing goal. So now we're tied. And so France scored almost immediately after the kickoff because John Stones was out of position and Pickford ended up making a really good save. And then almost immediately after that, Kylian Mbappe dusted Walker. He just blew by him. Then he squared it across and Giroud dummied it only for Dembele to like not react in time basically and didn't shoot. But that could have been a a chance for France. They didn't really take their chance very well there. Then Harry Maguire hit the post with a header in the 69th minute. So we had kind of a back and after the England goal, we kind of had a little bit of a back and forth. England was all over France until they got the penalty. And then it was kind of going back and forth with both teams generating some chances. And England, I think, rightfully felt they probably should have been in the lead because I think they had some better chances than France. But this French team is really good. And if you give them an inch, they'll take it. In the 76th minute, Dembele had a great header off a cross. And Giroud was right there. And Pickford made an outstanding save on Olivier Giroud from close range. And so France got a corner. Off the corner, it got played to Griezmann. Griezmann swung it back in. And Olivier Giroud heads it into the back of the net. He got the better of Pickford this time. And France take the lead. 2-1. Again, if you give this team an inch, they will take it. Harry Maguire on this goal. See, Harry Maguire, I feel kind of bad for him. Harry Maguire in club football with Manchester United has basically become a meme because whether he's at fault or not, Manchester United fans like blaming him for conceding all the goals. Now, in their defense, Maguire hasn't really played well for Manchester United and he gives up a lot of Bad goals, he makes a lot of bad mistakes. However, for England, in this tournament, Harry Maguire's been really, really good. I've loved the way he's played. I think he's been great positionally. I think he's, you know, limited the number of mistakes he's made. And in my opinion, he's been one of the better defenders in this whole tournament. Like, that's, I'm not even joking. I'm being 100% serious. I think Maguire's been really good. Unfortunately, he was marking Giroux on this goal. And he needed to do better. He lost the battle. Giroud headed it in. And sadly for England, you know, that Maguire mistake could not have come at a worse time. So now France lead 2-1. So now England have to get a goal back to tie it again. And in this, you know, after the goal went in, France again, England just took over the game. They were completely outplaying them. And it felt like France was hanging on for a lot of this second half, especially when England would put their foot on their neck. And I want to talk about the subs thing here quickly. So Saka got subbed off in this second half. And I, for the life of me, cannot understand what Gareth Southgate was watching. I don't know if he, you know, just had a blind spot for what Saka was doing. Because everything positive England was doing in the second half was mostly because of him. Saka was their best player in the whole game. In my opinion, he was the best player in the game. He was the man of the match of this game. But he got taken off. And he got taken off instead of Foden. Foden, who did nothing the whole game, stayed on the field forever, but Saka gets taken off. Makes no sense. I don't know why Southgate did that. Anyway, that was a small little side note. England, though, got their opportunity. See, what happened was Hernandez did a really, really dumb play. Theo Hernandez essentially body-checked Mason Mount in the box. The ball wasn't even there it was like hit way over and Hugo Lloris got it anyways but he basically just body checked him for no reason and the English fans and their players of course were going crazy they're like how is that not a call the referee didn't call anything on the field and so everyone's just looking to VAR because this is the moment this is why VAR exists because the referee made a horrible mistake not calling this and so VAR is like Yeah, you got to go look at this man, and so he did he went to the monitor. He looked at it pretty obvious penalty yellow card some English fans I saw online were really upset. This wasn't a red card those people are very mistaken on the way the rules work because they're trying to claim that Hernandez denied mount of a clear and obvious goal scoring opportunity when I watch this play there is zero chance this was a clear and obvious goal scoring opportunity. The ball gets hit in, and is there a world where Mount can get to it and tap it in? Maybe, but he'd have to develop like Usain Bolt speed, at least to me. I think the ball was hit way too far. Loris was gonna get it anyways. The ball was kinda gone, and like, even if you wanna maybe say he could've gotten there, like, that's not a, a sure thing. That's like very, very questionable at best that he could have gotten to the ball. So because of that, it's not an obvious goal scoring opportunity. If it's not clear and obvious, then it's not a red card. That's how it works. You need to, like, I don't know, people need to read the rule book more. Read the rule book before you comment on stuff like that. English fans, a lot of them just don't understand the rules. So anyway, it was correctly given a penalty, and it was correctly given a yellow card. Those were the right decisions. The referee on the field missed it, but VAR intervened, and then the correct call was made now England have a penalty to try and tie the game again. So Harry Kane steps up again. Kane is England's penalty taker. He's probably the best penalty taker they've ever had. Kane has been money from the spot for England. And so, everyone I think, myself included, we all thought this was going in. We all did. And Kane stepped up and he shot it over the crossbar ten rows up. So, Jubilation for France. If you've seen the Mbappe picture, he's like laughing his head off hysterically. And for heartbreak, just gut punch for England. England played so well in the second half. They were, in my opinion, quite clearly the better team. But this was a gut punch. They got the penalty that they rightfully deserved. And Harry Kane, their best striker, their best penalty taker maybe ever, skies it. This is a guy who's hit so many big penalties for them. And for Kane to miss this was shocking. And you could you could see there was like English fans, there was kids crying and stuff like that. They couldn't believe what they were watching. And after that, I think England was a little bit shell-shocked because they didn't generate a whole lot of chances after that, because this was in the 82nd minute, I believe, was the penalty kick. So yeah, Kane sent it 10 rows up. And then from there, France were able to see out most of the game England got one final chance at the very end of the game last kick of the ball free kick top of the box very similar to the Netherlands Argentina moment but Marcus Rashford instead of passing decided to shoot for himself and he hit the top of the net over the net top of the net so so close but no cigar as the saying goes so for England that was their last chance and France find a way to win 2-1 the final score and advance to the semi-finals. So the defending champions are still alive, and they have a chance to defend their title and potentially go back-to-back for, you know, they'd be the third country to ever go back-to-back to win the World Cup. So for England, obviously, this is a really tough loss. And unfortunately, in tournaments like this, there are no moral victories for countries with expectations to win the whole thing. England had expectations of winning the whole thing. They, this was kind of the next natural step for them. They made the final at the Euros. They made the semifinals at the last World Cup. And now this was supposed to be their moment. And they played well enough to win. But like I said, when you're playing teams like France, if you give them an inch, they'll take it. And they did. And there was just a few too many mistakes for England in this game. And as a result, they lose the game. Now, a lot of English fans were really upset about the officiating. And in my opinion, they have a right to be upset about the officiating. But the officiating wasn't the reason they lost. They lost because Kane skied a penalty kick. They lost because they were just a little bit off on some of these chances. They lost because Hugo Lloris made some great saves. And they lost because they made some defensive mistakes. That's the story. That's the story of the game. So, for England, they can whine, they can cry, and they can moan all they want, but ultimately, those are the reasons they lost. The officiating sucked, and they have a right to be upset about the officiating, but that wasn't the reason they lost. So, congratulations to France. They're through to the semifinals once again. Not the best Kylian Mbappe game in this. In this one but like he still had some moments where he was dangerous but Kyle Walker I think did a really good job about as well as you could do with Mbappe anyways but I still think most of the French players played pretty well I saw a lot of people say that Antoine Griezmann played well maybe I don't know maybe this is just a minority opinion that I hold but like I really thought Griezmann sucked I saw Griezmann misplace so many passes for them and just I didn't think he was very good but a lot of people seem to disagree with me on that on that opinion anyways for France though at least for me I think Koundé did really well at right back for them despite you know the horrible performances from a couple of their other defenders and then Chouameni outside of the penalty he gave up I thought he was really good in the midfield really important for that team Rabiot by the way underrated had a good game for them and then Hugo Lloris of course he stepped up when he needed to Lloris His best game, probably I've ever... Yeah, probably his best World Cup game I've ever seen from Lloris. And he had a really good game against Belgium in that semifinal in 18. So, credit to France. They're through to the semifinals. They will play Morocco in the next round. And so that will be a very, very exciting matchup. Can't wait to watch that one. That semifinal will be on Wednesday. And I will talk about that semifinal in my semifinal preview coming out later today. I promise there will be an episode later today about my semifinal preview. Before I end, I just want to talk about England really quick. For England, at least in my opinion, you know, maybe they go with a coaching change, maybe they don't, but for me, it's about staying the course. This team is good. And for the first time in my life, I can genuinely say England has a really good team and they shouldn't try to like change too much about it. They have really good players. And if they, you know, maybe they bring in a different coach, you know, their young players get a little bit older, a little more experienced. This is a team that will absolutely threaten to win the 2024 Euros and the 2026 World Cup. So it sucks right now being English and losing again and, you know, being heartbroken by penalty kicks again. But be happy that you have a good team. You haven't had a team this good in my lifetime. So be happy about that. That's my takeaway for that. So that's it. That's all I got for this episode. Semi-final preview coming out later today, I promise. And thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The World Game, a World Cup podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I will be doing reaction episodes throughout the tournament. The music is from Pixabay. The whole thing gets going on November 20th, so make sure you subscribe and don't miss a moment of the 2022 World Cup.